this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. First, I'll ask you, how are you and what's sort of alive for you this morning? Well, I'm... uh, I'm thinking not just about this week in Ordinary Life, but also starting a new series the next Sunday. And I'm going to steal next Sunday's title from a book titled by Marcus Ford called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. Yeah, that's a great book. I uh, got some emails this week from one of our faithful listeners, Wayne Herbert, on why... um, why Jesus in the the mind of most Western people is white. And I think that certainly fits in with what we have been experiencing in what you call this great apocalypse of um, systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, forensic anthropology pretty clearly shows that... um, Jesus is black. Certainly he was Middle Eastern, dark skin, mm-hmm. um, all of that. So I've been thinking about that and thinking about how to get into that. Didn't didn't we show the video White Jesus not too terribly long ago? Um, yes, we shared it on Instagram. That was your first successful Instagram post that Sabrina so lovingly helped you with. <laughs> And I've been thinking, too, uh, about the webinar that we have coming up in August with Michael Morewood. And um, I probably should let him know when it is and what the title of his talk is. (laughs) Dear Michael, here's what you are talking about. Well, we can put it out there right now if if he's out there in the ether. Michael, hi there. I'm sure he's sound asleep. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. So that's, been, that's kind of been what's on my mind, thinking about uh, thinking about that. I'm, uh, well, I, I actually, I intended to send you this podcast, um, but I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it. You, you are a fan of Nadia Boltz-Weber, um, and, and I am too. I, I, am, I guess I enjoy her honesty in kind of um, in this kind of apocalypse or uncovering, peeling back layers of realizing um, as I think you said, you know, this realization dawning on you that your your entire theological education was racist. And, and sexist. And sexist, yeah. I know for me that there's, there's this kind of feeling of being duped, like, oh, this system that I was taught to believe in doesn't work for everybody. It's not even close mm-hmm. to working for everybody. And she interviews in her podcast, which is called Confessional, my friend, uh, Lenicia Rouse Tinsley, who's a brilliant artist, who is uh, Cleve Tinsley's partner, um, sent me this podcast. And um, she interviews the grandson of one of Apartheid's biggest figures. Mm -hmm. And the grand, have you listened to this? No, but I have the link to it. I just haven't listened to it. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah, I listened to it this morning while I was walking. And and last night. It was half yesterday and half today. And um, number one, she says something like, 
when you get God to co-sign on your bullshit, you can't see it as bullshit. So when you get God to co-sign on um, the, the rightful use of power as white supremacists to suppress, right. in this case, black South Africans, or in our case, uh, use Africans as enslaved people for our labor and our history, not you and me, but um, the history of our country is founded on the genocide of the Native Americans and the use of brown bodies and black bodies for free labor. And, uh, and that was justified by belief that was justified by God, by some warped belief in God and what God was okay with. And so in some ways, as a white Christian, it's kind of like re-knowing God as a liberatory force, mm-hmm. not as an oppressive force. Um, James Cone says that God is only ever on the side of liberation and freedom of oppression, freedom from oppression. So it's kind of like holding that both exists, allowing that oppression exists with liberation. And by, by saying allowing, it's not to say that it's okay. It's just to say that we need to notice it. We need to be sort of in right mind about it, that oppression exists. It can be transformed into liberation if we do the work. So, um, I'm um, revisiting some material. We will be revisiting some material when we get into talking about the wisdom of Jesus, who many people have a hard time getting this, but he never became a Christian. Yes, I know. You know he, he remained a Jew, and he was intent on going back to the roots of Jewish wisdom and uh, recasting it for his own religion in his own time. And how did we ever get to the place that the teachings of Jesus became things that supported the establishment when there is every evidence that Jesus was always on the side of the oppressed, the disadvantaged, the poor, he was open to other people, but he clearly offered his teachings to people who were on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's no, the establishment, quote unquote, and what we mean by that, we could tease out if we want to, but if we just use that kind of collective word of the establishment, usually isn't for those on the bottom, right? Right. Yeah. And that's kind of been my one grappling with Teilhard de Chardin, actually, as I read him. He's a, he's, a, he's a technophile. He believes that the sort of integration of mind with technology will create this sort of supermind, this sort of super consciousness of, of the Earth's atmosphere called the noosphere. Mm-hmm. And, but he doesn't, to my satisfaction, address... Um, address the fringes, address those who have been excluded. He sort of, it sort of seems to perpetuate this, like the best of our minds will create the best of our minds and uh, the rest will fall away. And it, it's not overtly, uh, it's certainly not a, a overtly supremacist or, or anything like that, but I just, he doesn't address that, 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 that there is this kind of whole cast or people or groups that have been left out of this this right. cre- this 
this imagining of a different kind of consciousness, you know? Right, and that opens the door to share our conversation that we were having this week with each other about um, how to think about creation, Mm -hmm. evolution, um, because I think Deschardins represents probably the best of modernism, mm-hmm. and uh, I was educated in modernism. As so I think everybody was post World War II. Um, we thought that science had the answer for mm-hmm. everything, and um, one of the things I mentioned, I think I opened our our exchange with. Uh, the fact that when I was in graduate school, it was really cutting edge mm. to um, think about the social construction of reality and to think about the fact that human minds invented or created the notion of God. Mm-hmm. And then that got me to thinking about the Alan Watts quote that we have on the masthead of the emails that we send out twice a week that says that um, humans are creation's way to reflect on creation itself. So we were, right. we were evolved, if I can put it this way, to give the cosmos a way to be self-reflective. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, what I love um, that I'll, I'll share this paragraph that I read last night is that if we take that even deeper, maybe even further back into history, everything is the cosmos's way of reflecting the cosmos back to itself. I'm looking at your virtual background with the green rolling hills. The green rolling hills reflect green rolling hill self back uh-huh. to the cosmos, right? Uh-huh. And so the, one of my favorite thinkers, as you know, or might remember is Lady Anne Conway, who imagined, before we knew how to talk about evolution, in the time when uh, most people still thought that the world was only 6,000 years old, as old as the oldest living, oldest human artifact, right? Mm-hmm. Who thought that humans sort of began evolution rather than something deeper. Mm-hmm. She begins to imagine, what if everything is ensouled to some degree, right? What, is, what if everything has some aspect of kind of an invigorating self, if you will. Mm -hmm. And she goes through this sort of beautiful paragraph about imagining, you can almost see her in her yard watching a decaying log as it sort of breaks down and becomes mulch and then becomes dirt and then begins to form bacteria. And she starts to imagine that dead thing produced a living thing. So is anything actually dead? And does everything actually have the possibility for ensoulment or life for evolution? She didn't use the word evolution because we didn't have it yet, you know, but I just, I'm holding that space. Like she was writing in the 1640s, you know, and, and she challenged Descartes and said, there's no separation between mind and body. She challenged one of the greatest thinkers of her time. Mm. And that's not the thread that modernity picked up. We didn't pick up that thread of kinship, of um, kind of oneness or, and I don't want to say oneness and be like, can't we all just get along? I want to say oneness that there is spirit and matter are infused in one another. And that's kind of what I am toying with, that maybe spirit and matter Mm co-arose, that there isn't an antecedent 
one came before the other, that maybe they co-arose. Well, you were the one who got me to reading uh, Brian Swim. And mm -hmm. Brian Swim has this really very poetic description of uh, the evolutionary process of humans discovering that they had feet. What can we do with feet? Let's dance. <laughs> and so dancing came out of that. And we discovered that we had ears. Well, what can we do with these? Let's create music. And so yeah. all these things are, are really wrapped up together. And we have now gotten ourselves in a world culture, in a global culture, where we are so split apart. We're so mm -hmm. dualistic that the right takes the worst aspects of the left to demonize them. The left takes the worst aspects of the right to demonize them. And we have developed this solid belief in redemptive violence. And that's mm -hmm. killing us. It's killing us today. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go back to one thing you just said. You know, we, we have ears. What can we do with them? Before we thought, let's make music, we listened. And we listened to the whistling of the wind. Mm -hmm. and we listened to the cry of the hawk. And we listened to the sound of the bees. You know, and, and from that, we kind of, in this way, are mirrors or mimickers, if you will of the cosmos. Uh -huh. We observe and create from that observation. And that goes to, and, and, and this speaks to what you just said too, is that this dualism, this inability to see that I am not you, but I am not other than you. I am not God, I am not other than God. I am not the cosmos, I am not other than the cosmos. That our inability to see that, it, it keeps us separate, that we can't see that the music wasn't our invention. It was our interpretation, mm -hmm. our mirroring back to, to the cosmos, what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Like, I just get chills sort of thinking about and, that, and right? I, I remind you that, that Hafiz, our favorite Sufi, said, I am the flute through which God plays his music. Yeah, yeah. And when we talk about right concentration this week in ordinary life it's going to be quite a challenge because even though um in buddhism buddha himself did not teach a lot about right concentration all the students of buddhism and there have been many have written yeah. tons of literature about a wide variety of meditative and contemplative practices and there's no way we can cover all of those this week we're just going to hit the house <laughs> well we, we may decide we need an extra week we knows? may but um yeah um oh i'm not trying to throw you for a loop there okay. we'll see but, I'm flexible. <laughs> um, yeah so i told you i've been reading this book by david abram the spell of the sensuous yeah. um and some of the things sort of came up as i was reading last night um, he's talking about perception and how perception isn't sort of external reality interpreted by internal experience, that it's a co-mingling mm -hmm. of what happens with our eyeballs and what's mm -hmm. happening in, in sort of external reality. So he quotes something, as I contemplate the blue of the sky, I abandon myself to it and plunge into this mystery. It thinks itself within me. I am the sky itself as it is drawn together and unified 
And as it begins to exist for itself, my consciousness is saturated with this limitless blue. Uh And he goes on to say that perception is ongoing reciprocity with the world. And I am starting to think, because we have all this technology, we have all these inventions and creative ways of mimicking the world, right? Uh We we really, when we created an airplane, we're mimicking a bird, Uh right? But maybe our greatest technology is reciprocity and therefore love. Hmm. That's a great thought. We don't act on it. Yeah. But I wonder if that is our greatest technology to experience, reflect, and act upon love. How would you suggest that we embrace that? Hmm. It is the Eightfold Path, right? It is, it is participating in right thinking in right speech, in right mindfulness, in right concentration. Yeah. And as we begin to do this, and it's funny, as we've been going through this over the last eight weeks, and I've dove back into Thich Nhat Hanh, um, it makes you pay attention differently, you know, if we're really taking it in. And so I think that's part of it is, is, is an intentional practice around mm-hmm. Thich Nhat Hanh says, as I perceive the moon, the moon is perceiving itself in me, right? And that and the, the goes on to say, you know, don't mistake the finger pointing at the moon for the moon, but, but perceive the two things in reciprocal mm-hmm. exchange. Right. And that reciprocity was also part of writing Sweetgrass, right? Her reciprocal relationship with everything around her. And so even as maybe she accepted that something must die in order for her to eat that mm-hmm. morning an, an egg, right? That the recipro- reciprocity of that, I'm thankful for this egg for, su- for supporting my existence. What am I going to do to support someone else's or something else's existence? And, and that is the mindset that we need in order to get into using the technology of love. And I think in this country, particularly, Love has to go through a truth-telling process. And there is so much, there's so much denied on, in this land. Like this land is like saturated with denial. And I think we have to tell the truth. Well, it, the, this denial is part of the postmodern mind. I was thinking and listening to you talk about um, what Thich Nhat Hanh says. Mm-hmm. Thich Nhat Hanh is a Buddhist mystic, and the the mystics are the ones, I was thinking, like, the mystics that are from the 15th Mm -hmm. century, say, Meister Eckhart, sometime around the time of John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, those people, they were mystics. They were not affected by modernism, which thought that it could find all the answers through science. And then when we found out that that wasn't true, we fell into this thing that some people talk about postmodernism, where people say there is no answer, but I have it. That is the answer that they offer. And people become authorities in areas where they they are not authoritative. And um, there is a pattern that goes through creation of there's an order, there's a falling away from order, and then there's a reorder. Mm-hmm. And there's an order and a falling away from order and a reorder. There is a pattern 
that exist. Mm -hmm. And right now, I would say that our culture is in a humongous experience of disorder. Mm -hmm. What some people want is to, for the reorder to be like it was, for things to get back to normal. I'm sick and tired of hearing that phrase. Let's hope we don't do that. I don't think we will, but let mm -hmm. you know, I think we'll do something else. Right. But we have to we have to recognize that pattern. It's in every uh, it's in every mm -hmm. religion. It's in Buddhism. Uh, things arise, they fall away, and they arise, and they fall away, they arise, they fall away. Mm -hmm. And it's in uh, the Christian theology yeah. of birth, death, and resurrection. Um, it's in Sufism. Uh, it, it's it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I'm going to say that my question to you is how do we embrace that implied an answer which is that we have to have a daily spiritual practice. So I sort of kind of gave the right answer. <laughs> I talked yeah. about the path and, yeah. and, and embracing that within ourselves. Um, absolutely. It can't be separate from our individual work. Right. And so then it's taking our individual work into the collective. I think the postmodern mind is to think that there, there is no answer. Uh, and um, I, they were also separate. And um, the postmodern mind rejects the notion of mysticism as being some sort of fuzzy, new agey kind of thing, and it's not that at all. Uh, new age religions are just another form of fundamentalism. Right. Well, anything has that possibility, right? Science can be a kind of fundamentalism. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, not eating vegan can be a kind of fundamentalism. Let me not mistake saying vegans are fundamentalists. What I'm saying is when we get attached or gripped by the things that we follow, eating too much chocolate could be a kind of fundamentalism, right? Like oh, it's gone too far. <laughs> and don't, don't even stick coffee in there. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Oh no. yeah. So, you know, we, when we get hooked by obsessed with any uh, kind of thinking, we are in a fundamental way of thinking. Mm -hmm. and, That's true. Yeah, you know, so you know, Aristotle really kind of brought about the scientific method, right? And um, one of his premises was that what we can observe with our eyes in our, in our senses is what is real, right? Um, it, which is not to say Aristotle left out mystery. He also had this idea that there was a sort of... Uh, divinity or deity too that our souls would attain but that but that our souls could only attain that by observing what is real and having a relationship to what is real and you know all of these great thinkers that we we sort of study in this canon in the establishment if you will they're almost all dualists you know they're, they're, they plato was a dualist mm -hmm. <laughs> um uh, Aristotle was a dualist. Descartes was a dualist. Um, but and and those again, when when I think of Teilhard and his sort of idea of like this this collective consciousness, which I love that idea. But who is it leaving out? And is that arriving at a place? Mm -hmm. The Omega point of the Neosphere, just another kind of dualism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, when. Hearing you, hearing you say that reminds me of one of my favorite lines from Teresa of Avila, who said, how can you enter a room that you are already in? 
<laughs> right. And so there's no place to get to. Now that does not mean that there are not things that we need to do in the realm of uh, retributive justice. There are yeah. a lot yeah. that we need yes. to do that we have yeah. not accomplished. So in that sense, there are things to accomplish and, and goals to shoot for. But the awareness that we need to make this move from uh, redemptive violence to distributive justice yes. is a big shift that, that we can make only in the present moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, this the non-dualism of attending always only ever to the present moment mm-hmm. with seven generations of the future in mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So when we get into talking about the Beatitudes, we will talk about what did Jesus mean when he said that the kingdom of God is coming? (laughs) He didn't think about time like we do. Yes. Yeah. They didn't have clocks in that time. So a future event was something that could be talked about as already happening. That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'll probably say Sunday when we talk about some of these um, practices that are intended to provide stability to the mental process. Um, one of the things that people discover when they take up a meditation practice is how infrequently they are in the present moment, how infrequently any of us is in the present moment. Because... Yeah. We're out there or back there instead of being here. You want to hear a, a funny story, a sort of I self-flagellating love, funny story? I love funny stories. <laughs> so after Sunday when we were teaching about right mindfulness and um, it was a lovely conversation and I, I come home and I pick up the little vacuum and I start vacuuming the rug and I immediately start having a battle with the vacuum, which can't talk back to me, but it was malfunctioning and I'm shaking it and kind of, ah, Josh is standing there looking at me like, so good talk today, huh? (laughs) (laughs) You know, just, just how easily we can get out of right mind, if you will, um, and get distracted by frustrations, irritations, things fall away and then they arise. And I, and I go back to, and I don't want this to sound like, oh, don't worry, we can do anything we want and then we can just return to grace Mm -hmm. uh, or we can return to the path or we can return to forgiveness. It's not that. It's just that when we start getting shaken awake, we become more aware when we are off the path that it's an opportunity to get back on. And unconsciousness would be never knowing that you're off the path, right? Uh, Never realizing that you're, in discordance with with your surroundings or with with, mm-hmm. with the natural world mm-hmm. because i am a seven on the enneagram i'm always interested in okay since i have this knowledge how can i move it to understanding how can i move it to wisdom what's the path what's the technique mm-hmm. and um a seven would then be interested in doing lots of research and lots of reading gaining all the stuff, which I think is very valuable, actually. And, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. when people ask me that in, in terms of spiritual direction, okay, what do I do with this? 
I I do direct them to certain um, books or things that they can explore. Cindy mm -hmm. Wigglesworth has a wonderful book called SQ21, which is just filled with techniques about uh, how you can maintain stability of mind, how you can practice these things at work. Mm -hmm. When you get hooked by a colleague at work who you know um, is out of their mind or you pass some other uh, judgment about them, she has things you know you can do yeah. to um, alleviate that. To return, to reorient, kind of. Yeah. Um, yeah. I really love the, the sort of hyphenated remember to remember ourselves to our body to remember ourselves to the present moment to the room um to where we are um i i was li in listening to the nadia boltz weber podcast she talks with this guy about a painting that exists and i want to look it up because i i don't have a visual for it a painting that exists that is a depiction of his grandfather as the centurion poked the side of Jesus to make sure he was dead. And the Jesus on the cross in this painting is a, is a represented as a black South African. And, and that, and so he, as the grandson, like has to grapple with that legacy. Right. And mm -hmm. what he begins to talk about is kind of how as a person he's had to let go, you know, his last name carries a certain amount of power, weight, and privilege anytime he walks into a space that his last name precedes him. And he is automatically wrapped up with apartheid. And so in learning how to become a listener, uh, which he was only shaken awake to sometimes in his twenties, he had to learn how to soften and kind of let go of, um, of the defensiveness. And he talks about how the grace of kind of, the, like say the Jesus figure in that painting of in his eyes, the black South African, the graciousness of that to allow him the permission to learn how to not be defensive. But I began to think about it also in, again, in reciprocity, we must see ourselves as a centurion who is poking the side of Jesus, as well as Jesus, who is the symbol of grace and, and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And, and that is, this perpetual work of seeing ourselves in the I thou, I love Martin Buber's work, I thou, um, that I thou relationship is, is seeing ourselves not just as one, but also as the other, but also seeing the other as, as itself too. So, you know, I, it, it all points back to this, you know, these non-dualists, these non-dual minds over the course of history who, that's the wisdom path is I thou. And so I guess in like listening to his story, I thought, well, I don't know that I think it's up to the black South African to be great, overly gracious mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to the white apartheid dealer, or in our case, uh, the, the black American to be overly gracious to the uh, white who's just kind of realizing, oh my gosh, we live in a racist system, you know, I think that there is a kind of accountability and, and what we first need to do is to acknowledge suffering, to acknowledge suffering and to sit with the pain of suffering, mm -hmm. to recognize that Jesus' suffering is bound up with the centurion 
who poked his side. Their suffering is co-mingling mm -hmm. and their liberation is co-mingled, you know? So I, I, I want to amplify on what you said about, um, I am not God, but I'm not other than God. I'm not you, I'm not other than you. I, that's a teaching that I received from Jim Finley. Mm -hmm. I first heard those precise words from him. Now, I don't think Finley would claim any originality about those words, but they felt so authentically his when he said them. And um, the first time I heard him say that, I was with a, a large group of people, and you, I could sense, I intuited that there were people in the crowd who didn't like that teaching. Mm -hmm. They didn't because if you extend it to I am not you, I'm not other than you to include everyone, that, that, that's hard to do. It's getting bristly, right? <laughs> Finley sensed that and he stopped and he recited a poem from memory, which I want to give to you. Mm. So Finley stopped. And without looking at a note, he just looked at the audience and he said, Matt Talbot was a drunkard. Dismas was a thief. Magdalene was a playgirl and Thomas without belief. But there they are in heaven, looking down upon us now, each holding a tilted halo to a badly battered brow. And so the sins of all you sinners don't definitely damn, for your wasness doesn't matter if your isness really am. Mm. Matt Talbot was the patron saint of alcoholics in Ireland. Dismas mm. is the name of the thief, the so-called bad thief who was crucified with Jesus. Uh, Magdalene uh, in the story has been wrongly accused of being a prostitute. And uh, mm -hmm. Thomas, who was a creation of the early church, uh, Thomas, I don't think, ever doubted. Uh, that story is created, I believe, mm -hmm. to get the collection of sayings in the Gospel of Thomas, not included in the Christian canon, but that's my bias. But anyway, all those characters have a history. And uh, I just love that poem. I, that's the time when I, I memorized it because... yeah. It's just the way of saying everybody's in. Yeah. And you are absolutely right in saying that um, Jim Finley, I, and I too am aware of his, I am not God, I am not other than God. I, I think he writes on that. I think that the, it was a Roman Catholic Guardini that he sort of like to amplified his thinking. I guess what Meister Eckhart said is the same eye with which I perceive God is the eye with, with which God right. perceives me. And you know, one of the good things about this pandemic and this uh, staying in thing mm -hmm. is that um, we have time. It's kind of a, like an enforced monasticism, <laughs> yeah. right? Some ways, yeah. We we have time to experiment with some of these practices. And um, if you have access to YouTube, just go look up Jim Finley, James Finley on YouTube and watch some of his presentations. Now, I will tell you that both the video and audio quality on some of them are not very good, but mm -hmm. he has like this little short meditation on um, Thomas Merton's prayer 
Thomas Merton was Finley's spiritual director. And I read the Thomas Merton prayer as part of my own spiritual practice every day. I love that prayer. He had, Finley has some other things that are just so wonderfully mystical in his way of putting his understanding of the essence of God being love. And he has a lot to teach about contemplative practice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you know, again, I, it's like tugging on this thread of, um, of I am not you, I am not other than you. Thich Nhat Hanh's poem, Call Me By My True Names. Uh-huh. Uh, he didn't take a side in the Vietnam War. He was, well, I, he was a pacifist. So that he didn't take Vietnam, the sort of establishment of Vietnam's side is what caused him trouble. Um, and the rape of the little girl on the boat uh, by the sailor. And he writes that whole poem. I have been the sailor. I have been the little girl. I have been the snake. I have been the fly that the snake eats, you know, and this, the whole of evolution is in that poem and is a different way of saying, when I perceive you, I also perceive me. When I perceive the moon, it also perceives me. You know, we who live in the United States have been, um, since the Civil War, well, since the, the war that got the colonists started into being the, the beginning of the, what we call the United States, since the Civil War, we have been so lucky because uh, unlike, I was thinking about this last night when I saw the explosion in Beirut that we now don't don't know exactly what caused it. It doesn't seem to be an act of aggression, an uh, act of carelessness, but we don't know that. A lot of people kill. And I, I'm assuming you've seen a photograph or a movie of that. It's a horrible looking thing. <laughs> and um, I, I was thinking about, we had this moment in American history right after 9-11 when we could have behaved differently. Yeah. Yeah. And Thich Nhat Hanh was in the United States when that happened. Was he really? And short, I think so. Uh I think so. He, at at least sometime not long after Uh 9-11, he was at a gathering at Riverside Church in New York. I don't know if you've ever been in Riverside Church. I haven't. It's a, yeah, it's the iconography in Riverside Church Mm -hmm. is just amazing. Mm. But um, somebody asked Thich Nhat Hanh, what would you do in reaction to this horrible event? And he said something like, I would get the perpetrators and the victims in a room together. And after a long period of silence, I would say, what have we done to make you so angry? And I would listen. That's kind of the crux of that conversation between Nadia Boltz-Weber and her guest um, on her podcast, which is I'll have to listen to learning that. how to soften the body so that we're not. So listeners to this podcast, if they want to go listen to that podcast, they can go to their podcast source and what's it called? The Confessional. And I'll, I'll post a link and I'll post a link to it in the, in the summary. The Confessional. Okay, that would be very helpful, yeah. I, before we close, I want to say a word about, you use the word creative. I want to say the, a word about ima- the process of imagination. Okay. And, and kind of trying to, 
we can't think our way into new ways of being. We have to kind of imagine our way into new ways of being. And behave our ways. Right. We have to imagine and live into that imagination. And this attention to imagination is, I think, one of the things that makes humans unique. I don't want to say special. I just want to say unique. That we can attend to our imaginations and create things from it. And that get, gets me back to maybe our tech, greatest technology is love, is what can we imagine that to be? What can we imagine structures to look like if they are guided by love, by, by that technology? Right. Creative imagination is a powerful tool. Yeah. We have to imagine that we are all just right here and this is what we got to deal with. <laughs> and there is no out there. There is no planet B, as they say, <laughs> you know. You know, we could talk, we could uh, see if Nadia would be willing either to do a podcast with us or if she would be willing to do a webinar with us. That'd be cool. Do you know her? Uh, no, but I know people who know her and uh, Matt Russell knows her and um, Jeff um, McDonald, our senior pastor at St. Paul's explicitly asked me if we could try to get her here. And so he might know her. I don't know. Let's yeah. Do Let's try it. Put it out in the ether. Let's imagine. Okay. <laughs> then we can. All right. All right. So we'll see you on Sunday and we'll talk again next week. Uh -huh.